This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't you understand? It doesn't have to be like this. You have to help. It's gotten out of control. It's too big. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the broadcast, friends. Happy Father's Day to all you dads over there. I had a, uh, a great Father's Day. Uh, the twins, four years old, they actually made... Uh, barbecue aprons at school and then they you know they put their handprints uh, in paint all over the uh, the front of the aprons i got two that's the great thing about having twins you get everything in stereo right so i got two uh, barbecue aprons i didn't actually mention to them that we don't have a barbecue but that's not the important uh, thing uh anyway i, I hope you had a great uh, father's day i wonder how many of you uh were walking around today with those um wonderful handmade paper neckties. Did you ever make one of those for your dad? I remember. And he wore it proudly to church or to work, as the case might be. Okay, we have a, a full show for you uh, this evening. A little bit later, uh, around midnight, we'll, um, we'll speak with an interesting gentleman, uh, Kevin Cook. Uh, he's a, he's a, a master's in theology from a Protestant uh, seminary. And uh, I believe he is uh, a graduate from the Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. All of you Dean Martin fans out there. He was uh, actually from Steubenville, as I recall. He was a barber. Just a little bit of trivia. Anyway, Kevin will be along to talk about uh, uh, the Virgin Mary and the the various Marian apparitions uh, that have occurred throughout history. Of course, we're familiar with Fatima and Guadalupe uh, and some of the more perhaps controversial ones that continue to this day. Kevin Cook uh, affirms on tonight's program that uh, the Marian apparitions are real. And uh, we'll talk to him in just about an hour's time. All right. Uh, if For all you Lenin fans, and I certainly count myself among, among you, huge John Lennon fan, and we were all devastated, of course, back in uh, December of 1980 when he was gunned down on uh, 1 West 76, uh, 72nd Avenue West in Central Park in New York uh, by Mark David Chapman. But do we have the full story? You know, we've talked about it uh, a number of times on this program. 
the suggestion uh, being that there was more going on there than just one lone gunman with a well-thumbed copy of Catcher in the Rye in his hip pocket. And uh, perhaps tonight we'll uh, begin to peel back some of the layers on that glass onion, as Lenin liked to say. We are joined on the line from New York City, a cryptographer and the author of Peace Code, which is a yet-to-be-published expose offering startling new ones, insights into the secret that killed John Lennon. Pepper Chomsky, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Mr. Richard Surrett, it's my pleasure to join you tonight, and I'm just fine, thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll get into the, uh, the details as the hour uh, sort of uh, unravels before us, but uh, let me just uh, begin with how you uh, got started on this journey. I'm guessing you were uh, a big Beatles fan and a, and a big John Lennon fan, but, but how did you get involved in this particular project, The Peace Code? Well, you know, I think these projects start very innocently, and, uh, you know, curiosity is something that comes very natural to me. Um, I began just fishing around. I really had a hard time understanding how someone who represented peace, who seemed to be a pretty uh, fair-minded individual, uh, I liked a lot of the clothes that he wore, uh, I liked the, the friends he kept, uh, I thought he was a pretty cool guy. Um, at the end of the day, he's dead. He's got four very, very high ballistic bullets that are shot into his back. Uh, a lot of the stories around Mark David Chapman and the suspicions uh, attracted my interest. And I said, uh, well, you know, there's a lot of books available. Uh, there's record liner notes. Uh, there's people to talk to, uh, there's certainly the internet, which is uh, a really unbelievable tool for uh, researchers who are doing any kind of historical research today. And, uh, you know, on a couple of uh, uh, slow nights, I'd start uh, reading and doing some research, and, uh, you know, you begin to become more and more curious as you dig further and further in. Why don't we begin with um, the FBI files? Of course, it was uh, not a, a shock that uh, someone like G. J. Edgar Hoover would keep uh, files, uh, copious files, on someone like John Lennon. John Lennon was very actively uh, active in, in politics, uh, was certainly the voice of a generation. And uh, Hoover was very suspicious of his ilk. Um, now... What can you tell us about the the contents of those FBI files above and beyond the sort of the normal surveillance? Lenin long suspected he was being surveilled. Of course, he had the the um, the uh, issues with uh, U.S. immigration and so forth in the mid seventies, uh, and at, at certain points was concerned that he may be. Uh, uh, kicked out of the U.S., but above and beyond that sort of thing, what what else did you find in the in the released FBI files that sort of made your ears prick up? Well, you know, I think that uh, in answering that question, Richard, I, I want to step back a little bit, and um, you know, would really like to talk about the power of John Lennon, and I think that uh, really understanding the murder of John Lennon uh, is a direct. Uh, relationship with understanding the power of John Lennon and the power of John Lennon 
uh, versus the power elites. And, um, you know, there were a couple of things that one could say about Lenin. Uh, you know, certainly uh, during the 20th century, um, he may have been considered as, as a person who was, uh, you know, closely related to, uh, you know, great power. Um, there were messages in his songs. Uh, clearly, there were a lot of messages that were communicated. Um, he was an individual who understood how to influence events. And uh, in so doing, you know, he brought a lot of, uh, as you say, uh, surveillance and a lot of attention to himself. And um, the thing that also I think is important to note is that there have been some very serious researchers, uh, including myself, who have provided, uh, you know, a real foundation for um, some of the conclusions that I've drawn in my book. Um, and when you refer to uh, the FBI files, you have to talk about a gentleman whose name is John Wiener. Uh, John Wiener is a professor of history at the University of uh, California at the Irvine campus, and uh, he spent 20 years of his life um, trying to get access uh, to the FBI files, and he worked with the ACLU uh, of Southern California which is the American Civil Liberties Union. And um, there's, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, specific uh, processes uh, that are required in order to get access uh, to this kind of information. And the one thing that comes back uh, from the FBI, and this is sort of more in direct uh, response to your question, uh, but since 1983, uh, the FBI was telling the courts that release of the John Lennon files could reasonably be expected to inter alia lead to foreign diplomatic, economic, and military retaliation against the United States. Now, the term inter alia is a legal term, and it means most certainty. So this was a very, very strong statement from the FBI. And then further, the FBI goes on to say that they had withheld the files on the grounds that they contained national security information provided by a foreign government under an explicit promise of confidentiality. So in trying to frame the picture for you and for your listeners, you know, I begin my research looking at a man who was a musician, who was really a peacenik, who believed in you know, a lot of uh, ethical values that I identified with and I think a huge generation of people identified with. And then in the end run, we find that there was a, an undertone of uh, some kind of uh, clandestine involvement at such a high level that the FBI was fearful of releasing these documents for almost 20 years. Uh, Pepper, let me just stop you there. We'll take a time out. Uh, that is very peculiar. Uh, you know, the FBI's excuse why they, 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 they sort of dragged their feet on releasing uh, these files. You know, what sort of national security information uh, in those files? Uh, I don't know. I just we'll, we'll get into this a little bit, but it's uh, it's it's a puzzle to me. We'll uh, continue our conversation with uh, Pepper Chomsky, author of the uh, yet-to-be-published book, Peace Code, as uh, we 
try and peel back the layers and uh, figure out what was the secret that killed John Lennon. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AL 740. to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. Without each other, there ain't nothing, you know? It was a different viewpoint of what I'd felt about women, and I can't express it better than I said in the song. Mm. And it's for Yoko, but it's to, to all women. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Pepper Chomsky is with us, author of the yet-to-be-published Peace Code and in which he reveals the secret that killed John Lennon. Right now we're talking about the FBI files and uh, attempts to uh, have them released, I guess. Uh, was it a FOIA request, uh, uh, Pepper, that uh, the gentleman you mentioned, John Werner from, from UCLA uh, at Irvine, had, uh, had used to try and get these released? Uh, yes, uh, Professor John Weiner. And uh, he's at University of California, Irvine. Um, was it a FOIA actually, request? Uh, it was through the uh, American Civil Liberties Union. Ah, right. Uh, okay. Freedom of information, etc. You know, I mean, there's technicalities that uh, you've got to have a room full of lawyers to be able to get through these processes. Um, but, you know, there, there was sort of a, an interesting uh, aspect about it because uh, John Weiner pursued it as I said, for 20 years, he was convinced uh, that it was the FBI who was responsible for the murder of John Lennon. And uh, in the year 2000, um, there were about uh, 300 pages that were released, uh, 10 of which were blacked out. And uh, for your listeners that are interested, John Weiner has a tremendous website, uh, and it's the FBI files, uh, very simply, and... Uh, it references uh, all of the pages. She's got uh, photocopies of images of all the pages, even the blacked out pages that are on there uh, with his own editorial notes. And you know, um, now it's now I, I think he wrote a book as well. Did he not? The, yes, he did. The, In the year 2000, okay. he came out with his uh, scathing uh, Gimme Some Truth, the, the John Lennon FBI files. And, uh, you know, basically he, uh, he, he laid a goose egg. Uh, there was nothing in those files that incriminated the FBI. Uh, there was a movie that was made at that time, uh, the U.S. versus John Lennon. That's and anyone who, uh, who recalls that movie uh, probably rushed out quickly to see it. And uh, the same thing, there was just no fire whatsoever, nothing in those files to incriminate the FBI. 
Now I remember, uh, Pepper. I, I I believe I interviewed uh, a John uh, way back when when that when that book came out. In fact, I do have some of those FBI files uh, on my secret documents page at richardserrett.com. Now, so so what what did you learn? I mean, what was the 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 national security information provided by a foreign government? that was in those FBI files that prevented them from releasing them. Do, do you know? Well, the thing that we do know, and, and again, you know, reading between the lines is, is often, uh, you know, as important as reading what's on the page. Um, the fact that there were 10 pages that were blacked out in 2000 uh, was, I think, a very significant fact. And, um, you know, John Wiener and his team, they, you know, they sort of shot their shot and, and they kind of backed off at that point. But the judge who was uh, involved with the case, uh, uh, Justice Robert Takasugi, uh, who interestingly enough was the very first Japanese-American judge uh, in a district court in the United States, uh, pursued the FBI for release of the, uh, the remaining 10 pages. And um, he worked with ACLU and their lawyers up until 2004, uh, at which time the remaining 10 pages were released, except for two words. And again, if you look at John Wiener's website, you'll see that there are two words that are blacked out. Um, I'm not going to give you that answer right now, because I think that, uh, you know, there are a lot more questions to ask before uh, we're ready to sort of uh, drop that uh, hint for people. But again, I urge your listeners to go take a look at the website and look at uh, the materials uh, so that they become familiar with them. Um, anyone who's interested in uh, corresponding directly with me, I'll give you my uh, email address for them. It's Pepper Chomsky dot writer at gmail.com and I also can be reached uh, at Twitter uh, at Pepper Chomsky uh, I'm on Facebook I have a, a YouTube channel as well so there's lots of opportunities for uh, interaction um, but the one thing that I would like to sort of introduce and I sent you this uh, by email um, you know earlier as we were sort of uh, introducing the subject to each other and this comes from uh, Charlie Manson's uh, deposition in 1970 uh, during his trial. And uh, the judge, you know, I think was pretty uh, uh, resolved in, um, in convicting uh, Charles Manson. But at the end of the trial, he looked at Charlie and he said, you know, so what does helter-skelter mean to you? And... Uh, Charlie's response, and I'm going to quote this because I think it's very important. He said, helter-skelter means confusion. Literally, it doesn't mean any war with anyone. It doesn't mean that those people are going to kill other people. It only means what it means. Helter-skelter is confusion. Confusion is coming down fast. If you don't see the confusion coming down fast, you can call it what you wish. It's not my conspiracy. It's not my music. I hear what it relates to. It says rise. It says kill. Why blame it on me? 
I didn't write the music. I'm not the person who projected it into your social consciousness. Hmm. Charles, Charles Manson was then, you know, wrapped up and taken out of the courtroom after that. Um, but I think so, that that kind of ties, starts to tie together uh, the theory that I've come up with in Peace Code. And it really relates to uh, these messages that uh, were being um, conveyed through the songs, primarily John Lennon as author of these messages. Um, you know, we, we, we know uh, unequivocally that the song Help uh, was about uh, an experience that the Beatles had where, uh, un, unbeknownst to them, they were given LSD and uh, they felt a, a, a helplessness. And um, so, you know, John Lennon writes this song and he's conveying to the world that, you know, uh, something is not right with their world. And I, I also believe very strongly that, uh, you know, over the years, uh, he became very, very expert in the um, development of these lyrics that were sending messages out. And, and again, you know, as a political tool, he could, he could um, uh, influence a large number of people with these messages. You know, I mean, uh, not only just the the back masking, you know, we hear about that term used all the time where, you know, uh, some subversive uh, uh, messages would be put into the uh, context of a song uh, backwards, and then you'd have to play the album backwards to hear it. Um, but just remember that for him to be able to do that, or any musician to be able to do that, uh, they'd have to interrupt the recording process, and they'd have to get involved with all kinds of tapes and cutting, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it therefore became much more obvious to do something as a backmask message than a, a lyric that, uh, you know, was subtly conveying uh, information to a specific public. So, Pepper, is this all to suggest that, A, uh, the music of John Lennon and the, and the Beatles before Lennon's solo career had been co-opted uh, you know, by, by, I don't know, um, agents, uh, for MI6 in order to get a message out or, uh, or is it to suggest that B, Lenin, cognizant of what MI6 and for lack of a better term, you know, the new world order were trying to pull over on us, he was trying to get his message out or is it a little bit of both? Uh, well, I think in, in very specific terms, um, you know, when the Beatles signed with Brian Epstein uh, and in their management contract, um, there were confidentiality clauses, which again is not unusual in business relationships. Um, but in the case of the Beatles, it was, you know, very much enforced. And, uh, you know, the Beatles were in touch with Brian Epstein uh, 10, 15 times a day and you know, that's evidence through many of the biographies that, uh, that are out there on the Beatles. Um, and, you know, so they really felt quite trapped, I think, in terms of their ability to communicate. Uh, John Lennon as a personality, uh, and anybody who has seen, um, uh, you know, the recent biopic on, uh, on Lennon, uh, Nowhere, Bo Nowhere uh, Boy, um, 
you know, you got a feeling that this is a very independent individual who really took things into his own hands, took charge of his own life. And so for him, putting these messages into the music and, uh, you know, as I say, also understanding how to influence events and influencing events uh, was just a, a natural part of his life and his lifestyle. Uh, and, you know, when you look again at the bed-ins and how he influenced the press and how he, he manipulated, uh, you know, uh, world opinion, uh, he was very, very skilled uh, at doing this. One thing that's um, uh, confused me, uh, Pepper, yep. and um, coming back from that last break, we heard, of course, uh, Howard Cosell, which is how many of us learned about uh, the, the death of Lennon watching that Monday night football game against, uh, it was Miami and New England. I actually was watching that game, but I had the sound turn on, turned uh-huh. down because I was listening to a Beatles album, coincidentally. Mm-hmm. So I missed the, I actually missed the uh, the announcement. I'm, and I'm, so I'm, I leave my friends home that night and, I'm, and I just have the... Uh, you know, I'm, the sounds of the Beatle album in my head, I'm whistling those tunes, walking home, totally unaware of what had just transpired. But but before that uh, event, again, Monday Night Football, John Lennon actually was at a game, I think it was a Jets game, was interviewed by Howard Cosell. And uh, it was about the election of, of Ronald Reagan. And Lennon actually said, you know, I, I kind of like Reagan. Uh, which I think was maybe a, a shock or maybe a disappointment to some people. But I'm thinking, why would the FBI want Lenin dead? I can understand, you know, back in his more radical uh, a, a period, uh, was certainly outspoken ab- about Nixon and so forth in Vietnam. But there he is on, on national television proclaiming that he's kind of a Reagan fan. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think that it was uh, it was the Americans that uh, that were the villains uh, in this story. Um, you know, uh, there's a gentleman whose name is Fenton Bressler, and Bressler also was a uh, a very um, a detailed researcher uh, of uh, Mark David Chapman. And in uh, 1989, he came out with a book called "Who Killed John Lennon," and um, he felt that, uh, you know, Mark David Chapman uh, was a Manchurian candidate that had been programmed. Uh, Fenton Bressler was a barrister, uh, a British barrister, had expertise in criminal law. And he felt that uh, uh, Mark David Chapman's behavior and conduct was very unusual. And there were a number of circumstances uh, that uh, stood out uh, that he detailed in his book. Uh, as I said, his book came out in 1989, uh, probably one of the most um, uh, critical uh, works on John Lennon. Uh, the book is no longer in print. Yeah, uh, Fenton passed but, away, sadly. Yeah. Uh, copies are available, uh, you know, through Amazon. And again, I urge uh, your listeners who really are uh, interested in this subject to obtain a copy of Bressler's book because... Uh, I think he's got some great points that he makes. Um, he felt that it was the CIA uh, yes, because, who was responsible yeah. for he was, uh, for he was the one. Lies. He was the one that I think uh, discovered that the actual doorman that night was Jose Padermo, who was, I believe, involved in the Bay of Pigs incident. Well, you know, again, there are a number of things that uh, uh, that Bressler points out. Um, you know, I think. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, the behavior of, 
of Chapman, uh, you know, he says that uh, uh, as he was as he was uh, pulling the trigger, he heard voices go off his, in his head, uh, shoot, shoot, shoot. Um, his own attorney was preparing a um, uh, a defense for a not guilty plea, and then last minute he says that he heard a voice. He thought it was the voice of God in the cell, and decided to change uh, his plea to guilty. Uh, Bressler also picked out that um, uh, on the uh, the day that Chapman said he flew from Honolulu to New York uh, on a specific airline, I think it was United Airlines. Uh, there was no United Airlines flight from Honolulu to New York. Uh, there was a flight from Honolulu to Chicago, but there would have been three days that Chapman would have had to spend in Chicago before he got to New York. And he brought that information to the attention of the New York Attorney General's office, and the uh, New York Attorney General dismissed it. He said it's not relevant to the case. Uh, another thing that Bressler pointed out was he said that Mark David Chapman you know, was a basically reclusive kind of personality. He had been in and out of psychiatric treatment, uh, was not really a person who would have turned up in Beirut in 1975 at a uh, YMCA uh, youth counseling conference. Um, thought that that was very, very out of character for, um, uh, for Mark David Chapman. Uh, and, uh, again, you know, if you start to drill into some of the details, um, just outside of Beirut, uh, and, uh, would be considered a, a suburb of Beirut is a town called Shemlan. And, uh, in Shemlan during the Second World War, that was the, uh, British headquarters for their Middle Eastern intelligence. And if you, uh, go to Wikipedia and ask for Shemlan, it will tell you that Shemlan was known as a spy school uh, for uh, both British and American spies during the Second World War. So again, you know, we've got a cloak and dagger scenario here where uh, history has tried to portray things uh, in, a, in a way that, uh, you know, glosses over a very, very, very important facts and um, one of the things that I really would urge your listeners to do, uh, because, uh, again, over 16 years that I've been involved in this research, um, I have looked at uh, John Lennon's life, and I've looked at the uh, 1960s and the counterculture and things that were going on in the United States in a, in a very um, uh, particular way. Uh, and one of the things that's kind of turned up uh, is the movie Woodstock. And I think that, um, you know, if your listeners take a look at that movie, and we've all seen the movie, and it's a great movie, and there's tremendous performances there, and I've enjoyed watching it many times. Um, but I started to think, well, is there something in the movie Woodstock that may hold some clues? Uh, John Lennon in 1969 was actually... Uh, in the Toronto area, trying to get to Woodstock. Uh, the next Nixon government wasn't allowing him into the United States. Um, so I was watching Woodstock uh, maybe a dozen times. And a gentleman who is uh, considered one of the founders of Woodstock, uh, his name is Artie Kornfeld. Uh, Artie Kornfeld is uh, being chased around by a uh, reporter through the movie. And... Um, 
you know, anybody who's seen the movie Woodstock, you know that there's the scenes with the mud and the scenes with the rain, and there's, you know, there's all kinds of natural things that are going on, and um, they're riding around on motorbikes, and, you know, it creates kind of a, a nice interplay of scenes. But the reporter finally catches up with Artie Kornfeld, and uh, he says to Artie, so who paid for all this? You know, you see the helicopters and they're dropping food and it was considered a disaster area. And, you know, people who've watched the movie see the fence coming down and there were hundreds of thousands of people who came into Woodstock for free. And this is actually in the movie Woodstock. It's buried somewhere as you watch the movie about two-thirds of the way through the movie. But Artie Kornfeld's answer is particularly relevant and Artie Kornfeld answers the question, who paid for all this? And I'll quote Artie Kornfeld. He said, it was paid for by all the people that had the thoughts that put it to the point to get us to the position to just be a, to just be a tool, like a vehicle, like everybody else, just to get us to this point. Now, what is he? That, what he that sounds like he's suggesting that the Woodstock was a, a giant psyops operation. Well, you know, I mean, if you ask me who paid for it, I would tell you, uh, you know, my company paid for it, or I'd say his company paid for it, or it was none of your business. But I don't know that I would have come up with such a long-winded answer to say nothing, which. Again, if re- if you read between the lines, the yeah, he's not saying nothing. He's telling us something. He he wants desperately to tell us something. Yeah, I think so, and I think that's the answer to the question when we look at you know the murder of John Lennon and the secret behind the murder of John Lennon. That this is a very big story. Uh, a um, uh, a colleague of mine uh, who appears on this show quite often, media scientist Nelson Thal, was a uh, an archivist for Marshall McLuhan, and, and Nelson uh, told me some years ago that uh, when Lennon and the Plastic Ono Band came to Toronto prior to the bed-in in Montreal, and they performed, I believe, at Varsity Stadium, uh, Lennon paid a visit to Marshall McLuhan, and McLuhan sat down with Lennon and explained to him how he had become, how the Beatles were, in fact, uh, useful fools. Uh, and I don't know how much detail he got into, whether he, he tried to convince Lennon that uh, George Martin was an MI5 or MI6 asset and that he was manipulating them and, or, or what. Apparently, Lennon stormed out of that meeting. He came back a short time later, apologized to Marshall McLuhan, uh, and, and sort of from then on realized that what McLuhan had told him was true. Uh, which may or may not have contributed to the breakup of the Beatles. Uh, what have you heard regarding that, and, and do you think there's any truth to it? <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, first of all, I think you're getting your sources uh, from a very, very reliable place. And, um, you know, I, uh, I know of uh, who you speak about, and uh, he's someone who uh, has, uh, over the years, um, you know, maintained a great reputation as an academic and someone who uh, was very close with the late Marshall McLuhan. Um, I did spend some time researching uh, in the Toronto area and hooked up uh, with a gentleman whose name is Ronnie Hawkins, 
who's a very famous Canadian musician in his own right and uh, was really responsible for the band and uh, success of a lot of uh, music industry uh, in Canada through the, the 1960s. Um, and he hosted John Lennon and Yoko Ono uh, during those years that uh, uh, John Lennon considered himself as a, a fugitive uh, from a situation that had occurred uh, in, the, in the UK, and we can talk about that in a little bit more detail. But one of the things that, um, uh, that Ronnie Hawkins said, uh, which was very unusual, and he said that, uh, you know, when John Lennon arrived uh, at my place, and he lives out on a farm, uh, sort of northern Ontario, uh, he said that uh, Lennon had about a dozen phone lines installed and uh, the farmhouse uh, is about a mile maybe a mile and a half from the road so you can imagine he had these dozen lines running over the field some of which were planted with corn or different things and they were running into the house and John Lennon was therefore using the different phone lines in order to keep a clear line for some kind of communication and uh, you can imagine that, you know, a guy who lives on a farm and invites someone to come stay with them, and the next thing you know, you've got, uh, you know, 12 phone lines out over your, uh, your cornfields. Uh, that's an unusual experience. I would say. Uh, so, so what, the, uh, the suggestion, the implication there is that perhaps Lennon was in communication with his handlers, his, his overlords at MI5, MI6? I don't know. We'll take a break, Pepper, and maybe you can elaborate when we come back. Pepper Chomsky, author of the uh, yet-to-be, soon-to-be, we hope, published uh, Peace Code, The Secret That Killed John Lennon. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. ...deeply about the meaning of life, of love, and of family. He was an extraordinarily talented musician, and his music was part of that sense of loving. We thought we would end this evening with an evocation of his life and his music. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. A little bit uh, later in the program, in about 20 minutes actually, uh, we'll be joined by uh, Kevin Cook, uh, the author of The Marian um, Apparitions Are Real. And I'll talk about uh, uh, Fatima, Guadalupe, and some of the more recent 
apparitions of the Virgin Mary, and he'll explain to us why he thinks they are the real deal, the real McCoy. All right, uh, Pepper Chomsky is uh, with us, author of the yet-to-be-published uh, uh, Peace Code, The Secret That Killed John Lennon. Um, so the um, the idea that uh, while he was staying with uh, Rompen, or, or Ronnie Hawkins, the Hawk, in, uh, in the Peterborough area, um, at least I believe that Ronnie was at that farmhouse when Lennon visited, but... So he, so Lennon had all of these phone lines uh, installed, uh, suggesting suggesting what uh, uh, Pepper that he was um, in communic in communication with intelligence groups or or what? Well, John Lennon had a phone problem, and uh, John Lennon was under such extreme surveillance uh, that he didn't have clear channels to communicate with the people that he wanted to communicate with. Uh, in an interview that he gave to um, uh, to Jan Winner, and I hope that name is known to a lot of your listeners, Jan Winner was the uh, founder of Rolling Stone magazine. Yes. And uh, Jan Winner did a, uh, a very um, uh, incredible and detailed interview with uh, John Lennon on December the 8th, 1970, in New York. And at that time, uh, Lennon said that, you know, everywhere he went, every building he moved into, there were always guys fixing the phone in the basement. And he couldn't understand why the phones in New York were so bad. Um, he also said that there was uh, a car parked outside of his apartments wherever he lived, because he, he actually did live in a few different locations um, before he moved into the Dakota apartments. And... Um, you know, they, they didn't even want to uh, make themselves hidden. Uh, they made it obvious to him that he was being followed. And I think the thing that's important, you know, you talk about Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan was w probably one of the great theorists, uh, you know, in history. And uh, uh, he talked about the figure and the ground. And again, I'll sort of illustrate that up a little bit for your listeners. The figure and ground is sort of a, an artistic term. Uh, if you take a black dot and put it on a white background, you see the figure very clearly against the background. Uh, if you put a white dot on a white background, uh, you don't see the white dot very much. In fact, you don't see the white dot at all, but the white dot still exists. And that's kind of the, um, the terminology that's used sort of in the intelligence world, uh, you know, how things uh, can be made to look as if they they don't exist or, you know, the backdrop sort of disappears. And one of the things that I think we really have to focus on um, is the death of Brian Epstein. And uh, again, you know, a, a lot of time was spent in my research on the chronological details of what happened uh, through the 1950s and 1960s and certainly 1970s. Uh, as, you know, uh, the history of the Beatles uh, sort of unfolded and things happened. Um, in 1967, which is considered the summer of love, that's when uh, All You Need Is Love uh, was broadcast by the BBC, the first uh, one-world broadcast, the first satellite broadcast that went out. And uh, that was in July of 1967. In August of 1967, 
uh, the Beatles, who I had mentioned earlier, were in contact with Brian Epstein sometimes 10 and 15 times a day by phone and conversations with him and talking to him about all kinds of things. On the day that the Brian Epstein uh, had his so-called suicide, uh, they were in North Wales. They were sequestered in an ashram that had been set up as kind of a temporary facility with the Maharishi. Uh, they had been in there for three days without any phone contact. And um, I urge your listeners to go take a look at YouTube because there's a lot of great stuff. All of these uh, moments uh, when the press encountered uh, the Beatles and this, that, and the other thing, but in particular, uh, when the Beatles were told that Brian Epstein was dead, and uh, that's on YouTube, and you can see the shock, and you can see the fear, because now they realize that they're very, very much exposed, um, that their whole system was completely collapsed with this uh, death of Brian Epstein, and they were a long way from London and had no contact with him. Um, so subsequent to that, you know, we got uh, Paul McCartney who left the UK and he went in hiding in Scotland and that brought about the whole Paul is dead uh, rumor mill uh, and uh, Life magazine finally caught up with uh, Paul McCartney in 1969 and uh, had a, a cover uh, February of 1969 and again Anybody who wants to do some research, you'll see a very unhappy uh, Paul McCartney uh, who had been discovered in Scotland. And that's when John Lennon was uh, a self-proclaimed fugitive. He used that term a couple of times in interviews. Uh, there had been a lot of negative criticism about uh, uh, Yoko Ono and his relationship with Yoko Ono. And then he started with his migration to the United States, and he was in Amsterdam, and he held the bed in in Amsterdam, and then the famous bed in in uh, Montreal, where he recorded uh, Give Peace a Chance. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's important to note, I think, that he had Tommy Smothers there with him, and he also had Timothy Leary, who was at the foot of the bed when you watch the video of Give Peace a Chance. Yes, yes. So this man was a fugitive, and he was, you know, trying to find a safe haven for himself, and he thought that the United States would be that safe haven. Well, who knocked off Brian Epstein? Was it British intelligence? <laughs> well, I think that's a question for another show, sir. All right. I, so I don't have I don't have evidence on that, and I think that that one that one is going to be a very tough question. Uh, you know, we know that uh, police came into Brian Epstein's apartment and they found a note beside the bed and uh, he was declared dead and it was a suicide note. So it was a suicide. All right. So, uh, yeah, we'll read between the lines here. Um, but um, so at that point, um, the Beatles realized that, I guess, sort of a, a uh, the, the one person that was standing between them and uh, the uh, the elites was gone, and so they were totally exposed, uh, and so they they all headed for the hills, I guess. And so, is that probably what what precipitated really the, the the breakup of the Beatles? They realized that you know they weren't safe anymore as the Beatles. They were being controlled at this they, at, at this point. Their, uh, Brian Epstein, uh, their buffer was now gone. Yeah, I I think that's a pretty fair assumption. 
And then, you know, there were all kinds of economic problems that, that ensued with Apple, Apple Records and EMI and, all, you know, all kinds of mess that uh, uh, was, was part of that uh, confusion. Okay, so let me just see if I can continue to you know to connect the dots here, and and I realize you know you, you don't want to give give it all away here, but but um, so is this a, is this the point maybe, and in combination with McLuhan's fortuitous meeting with Lennon, that Lennon started infusing his music with a lot of these these sort of these messages, trying to to set the uh, the people straight on on really how the world works and who's running the show and 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 this sort of thing uh well i'll take it one step further i think that john lennon you know as a a rugged individualist um you know the working class hero uh he's a guy who took things into his own hands and uh you know he already had mastered the uh, the art of uh, of messaging he had already uh, mastered the art of uh, influencing events, and uh, there was something in particular uh, that he discovered uh, at work in the United States. And this is, again, something that I have discovered after over 16 years' worth of research. And um, he took action. And he decided to do something. And I can kind of bring you close to what this action was. Uh, we know that in October of 1973, uh, John Lennon leaves New York. And uh, Yoko Ono tells everyone that uh, he, uh, her and John had a, uh, a domestic quarrel and that John was leaving and this was going to be a separation and he was going to Los Angeles. Uh, the famous Lost Weekend with Harry Nilsson. The famous Lost Weekend. Okay. So he goes to Los Angeles and, um, you know, just by the by, uh, he's, he's hanging out with Phil Spector. Okay. And Phil Spector, uh, at this moment in time, I understand, is in uh, U.S. prison for life. Yes. So, uh, you know, there, there may be some relationship between what happened in 1973 and perhaps where Phil Spector is at today. But again, that's, that's another show. Um, but, you know, as I said, John Lennon left New York. He went to L.A. He's in L.A. And things occurred uh, in California uh, that, again, are part of the discovery of the peace code. And that's the idea of a code that... He actually put into the Mind Game song uh, to identify um, a particular individual uh, who was in the area, and I think that he identified this person as being some kind of uh, perhaps a British agent, and um, that person disappeared mysteriously. And um, I am very clear on my research and very, very resolved in my opinion. And uh, my opinion is that uh, there may have been some retaliation for that action that John Lennon took in 1973 and the involvement of Mark David Chapman and therefore uh, this brutal and uncalled for murder of, uh, you know, a great humanist and a great musician. Uh, you don't have to answer this because uh, I, you know, I, you don't want to divulge everything here. But, but the action that Lenin took, 
Um, just tell me if I'm in the ballpark. I mean, did he did he discover that again he was being uh, trailed by someone maybe in British intelligence? Took matters into his own hands. If Lenin was, you know, by his own admission, violent. Perhaps he killed this individual. Maybe it was unintended, but um, that was the result. And seven years later, MI6's rough justice was meted out. Well, Richard, you know, based on our conversation tonight, uh, I think we've ruled out the FBI. Um, I think we've ruled out uh, CIA. Uh, we, we have the, uh, you know, the uh, verbatim transcript from the, uh, from the, the court records, uh, which talk about, uh, you know, a, um, a foreign diplomatic, economic, and military retaliation against the United States that was, uh, some kind of national security information provided by a foreign government. And the sad story is that Mr. Lennon got himself somehow uh, connected uh, with a, you know, a very bad uh, connection, a real wrong number there. And, uh, you know, and therefore, I think that, uh, that it, it, it brought about his demise. Um, I'm, just, I'm thinking of the line from Mind Games, some kind of druid dude, dru- dudes lifting the veil some kind of druid dudes. Am I getting close? Well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not going to give you the, the, you know, the $50,000 right now. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, it's a great book. Uh, I'd love to, uh, to see a publisher, you know, get in touch with me. And uh, I think for your listeners and for uh, people all over the world who were great John Lennon fans and who sort of believed in, in uh, you know, in a lot of the... Uh, uh, messages that uh, that were the positive messages. I mean, we we live by his anthems. I can't tell you how many Christmases I've been, you know, in major department stores and they're playing uh, all of the John Lennon themes over and over and over again. Um, you know, if anyone would like to have a, a personal conversation with me, uh, pepperchomsky.writer at gmail.com uh, or at pepperchomsky uh, Twitter, my Facebook. Uh, Pepper Chomsky, uh, take a look at YouTube. I've got some interesting things there. Um, you know, I, I'm here to, to get this book published, and I think that uh, it's the right story, and uh, hopefully it's the right time for the story. Well, what has been the, the response uh, from, from publishers? Do you think they may be afraid of the material, given some of the insights that you're providing and maybe even some of the, the finger-pointing? Well, you know, um, I, I'm going to I'm going to give you a couple of a couple of uh, insights on that. Um, one, uh, going back to 1970, um, there was a moment in time when uh, things in the U.S. were very very much out of control, and Richard Nixon was in the White House uh, just by coincidence. I don't think it was really uh, his his fault that things were out of control in the United States. But he brought in December of 1970. He brings Elvis Presley into the White House. And they have a press op, and again, you can go to the, uh, the Government of the United States website, and there is a full um, expose on uh, the, uh, the Presley visit. And in the transcripts from that particular visit, uh, which were transcribed by an aide, Bud Groh, uh, who was there in the Oval Office with Presley and, uh, and the president, um, Bud Groh writes, Presley indicated that the, he thought the Beatles had been a real force for anti-American spirit. Uh, 
He said that the Beatles came to this country, made their money, and then returned to England where they promoted an anti-American theme. The president nodded in agreement and expressed some surprise. Like, you know, typical Nixon expressing some surprise. You, you could really believe him. Uh, the president then indicated that those who use drugs are also those in the vanguard of an anti-American protest. Violence, drug usage, dissent, protest all seem to merge in generally the same group of young people. So, you know, I think that, you know, what we're seeing is, is we're seeing a condition, you know, in the same way as a, as a doctor would say, well, here are the symptoms of the disease. And, uh, you know, the symptoms of the disease are pretty clear. Um, why John Lennon took the action he did, you know, he was a father, he was a husband, uh, he was already removed from the Beatles, he was starting a new life in New York. Uh, he was the same guy that, you know, took matters into his own hands and, you know, uh, just decided that that was the direction that he wanted to go in. And, um, you know, that was the consequence. Uh, to answer your question directly about, uh, you, you know, a fear factor uh, related to this John Lennon story, um, I did track very, very carefully between uh, October of last year, 2010, and December uh, October 9th would have been John Lennon's 70th birthday. Uh, December, obviously, uh, was the uh, 30th anniversary of uh, his murder. And uh, Yoko Ono was very busy. She uh, had public appearances. She was uh, giving a lot of statements to the press. In fact, she had a campaign that she called Give Me Some Truth uh, that she had coordinated with EMI, and they took... Uh, John Lennon tracks, and they took off all of the, you know, um, uh, enhancements that were used by uh, EMI uh, to, to basically give you the, the, the real true John Lennon voice on those recordings. And those are, those are a tremendous box set of recordings, by the way. Give me some truth. Um, but the point that I'm trying to make is that in behind the scenes, she had a message. Give me some truth. And I think that she was trying to somehow get across, uh, you know, some kind of interaction with the press, who was behind the murder of John Lennon. And um, there wasn't one article that appeared in the United States. There wasn't one article that appeared in Europe. There wasn't one article that appeared in Canada that dealt with the sentiment of the wife of John Lennon, who may have been behind the murder of her husband, the only article that appeared was one very obscure article that appeared in a Korean newspaper about the sentiment of Yoko Ono, who may have been behind the murder of John Lennon. Let's uh, grab a, a quick call uh, from Buffalo. Frank is on the line, and this will be the final word with uh, Pepper Chomsky. Frank, thanks for your patience. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Another, another great show. Uh, Mr. Chomsky, um, uh, on, um, I believe it was, it was Fox News or ABC around the anniversary of uh, the 30th anniversary of uh, John Lennon's murder in December. Um, they, had a, they had a show, and, and they interviewed the uh, policeman who made the actual arrest of Chapman, he said he grabbed him, threw him up against the wall, and the first thing Chapman said was, I acted alone. Now, I thought that was very interesting. Uh, either 
he was covering for somebody and realized it and didn't obviously that, didn't want that person to be known. Or, as you suggested earlier, he may have been uh, programmed. Do you have any knowledge of, about him saying that? Uh, in particular, uh, that statement, um, you know, I'm not aware of, but I know that there have been a number of journalists and reporters, uh, you know, who have commented on the fact that, you know, he stood there for a great length of time by himself and made no effort to escape. He could have crossed the street. Apparently, there was subway access across the street and could have been off the scene in several minutes after the shooting. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I had heard that, too, that he, he, he just sat, basically just stayed there and didn't make any, any move to escape. So um, yeah, I, found the, I found that interesting, too. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Frank. From, thanks, Frank, from Buffalo. And uh, Pepper Chomsky, thank you. Uh, you've really sort of uh, piqued our, uh, our interest, and um, we're, uh, we're all obviously now waiting for the Peace Code to be published so that we can uh, uh, connect the rest of those dots. So thank you very much for this. Richard, you're a great host, and I am very pleased to have been able to spend some time with you tonight. All right. I, um, I'll anxiously await uh, my review copy once it's published, and we'll have you back on. My Thanks, pleasure. Pepper. Thank you so Bye. much. All right. When we come back, the Marian apparitions. Kevin Cook says they are real, and they continue to this day. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. I just got to tell you. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous perhaps of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, Dead on Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. A Marian apparition is uh, an event when, when, when the Blessed Virgin Mary is uh, believed to have supernaturally appeared uh, to more than uh, to one person, to one or more people. In fact, uh, in, in some instances, there's been thousands of people. And uh, the, the, the name of the apparition, uh, the Guadalupe uh, or Fatima, obviously, that the, the name is often based on the town in which the, uh, the apparition is reported. Uh, and I guess 
one of the first apparitions uh, many of us are familiar with would go back to uh, Guadalupe in, in the 1500s. And um, that didn't get a lot of attention, actually, with the Roman Catholic Church, coincidentally, because it was in, back in around 1530, I believe. And at that time, of course, the Catholic Church was embroiled in the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. So, uh, but there have been many, many, many uh, apparitions. And, uh, of course, the one at Lourdes in uh, France and the one in Fatima, Portugal, in 1917, when the Blessed Virgin Mary allegedly appeared before uh, several young girls. My next guest, however, uh, insists that these Marian apparitions are real. And uh, he's here to tell us more. Kevin Cook has a BA from Upper Iowa University and a master's in theology from a Protestant seminary. He's a graduate student at the Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Kevin Cook, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, great, Richard. It's good to be with you. Good to have you aboard. Now, as a Protestant, I mean, um, when, I guess when we, maybe mistakenly so, but when, we th- when I think of uh, the, these Marian apparitions, um, for some reason, I, th- I mean, they, they generally happen in, in Catholic, Catholic countries. Uh, they do, but not all. No, that's true. But, and, and, and in the past, whenever I've had anyone on talking about Marian, uh, apparitions, uh, they tend to be Catholics. And, and here you are coming at it from a, a slightly different perspective. And that is as a Protestant. And I, I don't know, am I reading too much into that? Or, I mean, no, no, no. Actually, Richard, I am a Catholic. I was a former Protestant minister. Ah. Uh, so uh, as far as that goes, most of my background is Anglican, which isn't very far apart anyway. That's true. So was it your research into um, Marian apparitions that led to your conversion? Because certainly the apparitions have been attributed to the conversion of, of millions of Catholics. Well, they have. But actually, Richard, I got to expose the paranormal really early in life. I uh, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and my uh, about that time, uh, remember the Bermuda Triangle book uh, Charles Berlitz wrote uh, many years oh, yes. ago? Well, my father was a big electronics engineer down there, and as a teenager, I asked him, you know, of course, that's where we were living. I said, is there anything valid about this Bermuda Triangle thing? And uh, he actually said, I know you expect me to pour cold water on it, but actually, yes, because he dealt with a lot of admirals for the Coast Guard, uh, both in his volunteer work uh, where he taught. He was in charge of all the Coast Guard Power Squadron where they teach boating courses to the public in South Florida. He did that as a you know voluntary thing. And he also employed a lot of people because uh, he's a defense contractor. Anyhow, make a long story short, that was absolutely a valid phenomenon. And as it turns out, there was another movie you might have known. It's an old classic movie with Ernest Borgnine. It was um, The Ghost of Flight 401. Yes. And uh, our neighbors in Plantation, Florida, were actually Eastern Airlines senior pilots, and they had seen this ghost. So early on in my early teenage years, I became opened up to the fact the world is not, you know, what it seems to be or, or the normal, simple explanations aren't valid. And... Uh, what happened, uh, to bring the story up to speed, though, in September 2008, I was on a land-purchasing expedition up in upstate New York, and uh, it's very pretty up there, and uh, 
I didn't buy the property, but the day before I, I flew out, I was uh, playing tourist in the Mohawk Valley, and uh, I ran across Our Lady of Martyr's Shrine in Oriesville, New York, and uh, I had, you know, I didn't know it was there. I just came across it in the first 10 minutes, and Richard, I was there about an hour and a half, and for the first 45 minutes, I smelled an overpowering, throat-gripping smell of roses, and uh, there weren't any roses up there, and uh, all I saw were pines and maples, and finally, after all this time, I went to the museum up there, and I, I asked the curator, I said, what is it that's so fragrant up here? I, you know, I sell plants, and I'm in the landscape business, and... Uh, I mean, I'm somewhat familiar with them, and uh, she looked at me kind of shocked, and she said, you smelled it too? And I said, well, I guess. And uh, she even showed me on a map of the property where I probably smelled this in the strongest sense, and it, she was accurate. And uh, that was where the first uh, rosary was set in that part of North America in 1642. And uh, I knew I'd experienced a, a valid phenomenon, because I really have bad sense of smell. I have bad allergies <laughs> in Texas, and just because I was in New York doesn't mean they were cured. Anyhow, make a long story short, uh, this was called the odor of sanctity, this phenomenon. And it was a very gripping thing. I mean, it, it was, you know, once you've experienced something like that, it, it's not something you take really lightly. And I'd always had an interest in Marian apparitions, and the more I looked into them, the more I found out they had this odor of sanctity uh, phenomenon associated with them. And I guess one thing led to another, and that's when I rent. Uh, I put about a year and a half researching and writing this book. Now, an apparition, um, uh, as um, distinct from an appearance, can you sort of explain the difference? I mean, there have well, been a now, number. Well, really, of- the apparitions are—that's just a generalized term. They can either be silent uh, visions where she doesn't say anything, or they could actually be speaking ones where she'll talk to the witnesses. That is, they call them seers. And uh, they, the largest one, actually, was a silent one, but I'll mention that in a minute. But uh, So in other words, they can vary. But uh, an appear- they, you could say some of the more limited ones could be termed appearances, but apparitions is the generalized term. They apply to all of them. And um, the, in, the, in the apparitions or appearances in which there is a message... Uh, what is the Catholic uh, doctrine or what is the Catholic uh, official policy, if you will, concerning any of the, either the prophecies or the, the messages that come from the Virgin Mary, keeping in mind that according to church doctrine, the sort of the era of public revelation ended with the death of the last living apostle. So, I mean, in other words, yeah. the Virgin Mary couldn't, can't be adding anything new. Well, in reality, that's not really the way the church looks at it. Is that right? Uh, okay, well, sort that out for us. Well, the church is very deliberate in its uh, evaluations of these apparitions. Uh, for example, the apparition with the most dramatic uh, prophecies was at Fatima. And uh, they had you know, different secrets, different prophecies. For example, uh, uh, the Virgin Mary appeared to Sister Lucia and her two cousins uh, were in... Um, uh, or two companions, rather. Uh, she prophesied to the children that Russia, due to its errors, would cause troubles in the world. And this was in 1917 Portugal, for example, and these were peasant children. They didn't even know where Russia was, let alone anything about their, you know, the Russian Revolution that was just starting at that time. 
this was October of 1917. I think the Russian Revolution, if I remember my history correctly, rocked on until about 1920. But uh, so this was a startling prophecy, and uh, and there's also connected with that. She mentioned the start of World War II, and that a, a great light would be seen in in Europe just before the onset of these hostilities, and that actually happened. Uh, Hitler at Berchtesgaden, where he was just before the war kicked off, saw the light, and this is now we'll march or whatever. That was the kickoff for his uh, at war efforts. So uh, the church investigates these, but uh, they're very well chronicled and very well uh, backed up, but they, they take a good long time uh, with great deliberation before they, uh, they consider an apparition valid. I mentioned... Uh, uh Guadalupe back in the 1500s. Right. How many uh, people supposedly witnessed that apparition? Well, there weren't that many witnesses to that. That was really to a Juan Diego who was the seer in that case. However, uh, there is what I want to say, Richard, before I get into further, there's more evidence for the reality of this apparitional field than any other form of the paranormal. I don't care whether it's UFOs or ghosts or whatever. Uh, on my website, uh, I have a recommendation page from a Dr. Tim Barth, who's a Ph.D. He's a head of the psychology department at Texas Christian University, a pretty big university down here. And uh, he's a ghost hunter, too. <laughs> but uh, in his... Uh, Recommendation and his full forward, he he does indicate that the level of evidence of this phenomena far supersedes anything in the ghost hunting field or certainly the UFO field. But in the Guadalupe experience, the thing that's dramatic about that is not so much in the prophecies or the number of witnesses, but rather that that the garment that you, you've seen that image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, the the image that was on the Tilma, the cactus husk garment that the uh, witness had. Have yes, you seen yes. a copy of this? Yes. Okay. Well, that's that Tilma, that exact garment, is on display at the Basilica of Guadalupe in Mexico City today. It's been in church custody for 500 years, and it's only been under glass for about 150 and exposed to environmental circumstances, you know, humidity, smoke, even an arsonist attempt in the 1920s. And yet it's still in pristine condition. But more important than that, that, gar- that garment has been uh, made available for scientific study. And Richard, there's no sign of pigment or tracing on it. There is no explanation about how that image was made on that fiber. And that was done by Sandia Labs engineers, who are the highest level testing, uh, physical testing uh, organization in the world, probably. And not only that, but in the Im- the Virgin Mary's eyes, the image, uh, like our eyes have a cur- our curved lenses, and if you were to look in, if we were staring at each other, our li- our respective images would be distorted by what's called the Samson-Purkinje effect, or distorted from a curved lens. Twenty different ophthalmologists have looked at the Virgin Mary's eyes in that image, and it replicates the Samson-Purkinje effect of a curved lens. In other words, this is beyond what an, uh, an artist could depict, even if there was right. a painting, which it wasn't. But, I mean, it, this is way beyond what we could uh, replicate. That's all I'm saying. It's a miraculous object. 
Kevin Cook is with us, the author of Marian Apparitions Are Real. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. And uh, I'd like to discuss uh, the uh, the apparition at Lourdes in uh, the 19th century, uh, in which I believe the Virgin Mary appeared to certain individuals uh, no fewer than 17 times. We'll also open up the phone lines and take your calls at 416-360-0740 and toll-free from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, 866-740-4740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Marian apparitions are real. Visits from Jesus and Mary. Kevin Cook, the author. Uh, joins me now here on the conspiracy show, and uh, I want to get to the, uh, the uh, Our Lady of Lords. But just uh, if we can just back uh, back to uh, the Guadalupe for a moment, okay. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, the the idea of the the Virgin Mary appearing to one individual in this case, right. although it, it's it subsequently apparently led to the conversion of about about eight million new Catholics. Well, initially, uh, and then actually. Yes. Uh, Extrapolated, it was about six hundred million in Mexico and Latin America currently. So, uh, it, and it also it, there's, a, there's a pivotal timing aspect to this, Richard. Uh, like that was at a time when the Spaniards were persecuting the Indians, treating them like subhumans. And when she appeared to the Juan Diego, the Indian uh, seer, it kind of changed the uh, well the perspective the Spaniards had of the Indians, and they start treating them better. And the, like the Fatima example, it was just for World War Two uh, and so forth, and a lot of for the onset of communism, a lot of these are very pivotal. Have a very pivotal timing to their uh, to their message. And and, and uh, as I mentioned with with uh, Guadalupe, it was also happening. It didn't get an initial much reaction from the Catholic Church because they were involved in the in the Protestant Reformation. Um, so the timing. I mean, do you think the timing there was significant? In terms of well, the Reformation, I don't know. I never thought about it in that connection, to be honest with you. But uh, as far as the, you know, the treatment of the Mexicans, uh, the Indians, uh, it did make a, a big difference at that time. I didn't think about it in terms of the Protestant Reformation, to be honest with you. But the Church has had that garment in its custody for five hundred years, and uh, they did, uh, you know, build chapel for it. Uh, but it's had enormous effect on, uh, you know, North America for sure. I mean. America. The the apparitions of um, the Virgin Mary in in Lourdes, France, in the eighteen fifties. Right. Uh, again, how many how many witnesses? Uh, initially, it was well, a, now that like was a just pet- a single uh, witness there at that time as well. That was Saint Bernadette, who's actually my patron saint. But she uh, 
she saw the Virgin Mary over a two-week period. And uh, the proofs of this were more in terms of the miraculous cures that developed. And also, uh, the Virgin Mary indicated where Bernadette should dig for a, a stream. And, there, and she started digging in, the, at, in this grotto, which showed no evidence of a stream. And within 48 hours, there was like 20,000 gallons an hour going through the thing. See, uh, quite a miraculous event. But they, they've chronicled hundreds and hundreds of cures at Lourdes. Uh, they have a medical bureau that's investigated the authenticity of these cures, and that's the credence that uh, Lourdes has had. And uh, there's also an interesting side facet to that, uh, Richard. In my book, uh, in the middle of it, uh, Marian Apparitions Are Real, in the middle of it, there's a photo of Bernadette, and Bernadette is one of what the church calls the incorruptibles, where she was actually uh, dug up uh, 15, 20 years after her death, and she was not, her body had not rotted. And that picture that I have in the book is taken from her at, she's under glass at the Cathedral of Nevers, France. She was not embalmed. There is a little wax on her face because of discoloration, but Richard, believe it or not, the flesh is not rotted. And there's 103 different people that uh, have been chronicled in Joanne Cruz's book, The Incorruptibles, that have similar uh, formats as far as the flesh is not deteriorated. And uh, I know this is hard for people to grasp, but this is as true as uh, you know the dachshund that's sitting at the foot of the bed here. So. <laughs> well, the, uh, as an Orthodox Christian, I, I am aware of, of some Orthodox saints who, are, who likewise uh, yes. uh, remain uh, uh, incorrupted uh, hundreds of years after their 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 uh, their burial, so it is absolutely absolutely it is remarkable. And, you know, also, Richard, in my book, also chronicles a lot of Orthodox apparitions. Is that right? Yes, you usually don't hear about them, but yes. Uh, oh, the greatest apparition, as far as total numbers of people, was actually from 1968 through 1970 at Zaitun, Egypt, uh, suburb of Cairo, where the Virgin Mary was seen hovering over a Coptic church, which was basically just Eastern Orthodox, uh, Egyptian Eastern Orthodox. And uh, this was seen by its estimated as many as 14 million people. Also in the book, I've got a picture in that where you know you see the image of the Virgin Mary. This was a silent apparition, but it went on for three to five times a week from the whole period from 1968 through 1970. Uh, this was at a time when... <clears throat> Nasser was the strong man in charge of Egypt at the time, and he was basically a Soviet client type. And he was a Muslim, but, you know, just a name only. But he definitely wasn't someone that was in favor of Christianity. And to make a long story short, he sent special forces troops door to door, a mile square around that St. Mark's Coptic church to, see if, to try to debunk the apparition to find if it was some form of projection or whatever. Couldn't do it. At the end of the investigation, even Nasser admitted this was a legit event. I think that's rather amazing. It is. How did the uh, the the newspapers and the uh, the news media at the time cover the event? It was actually well covered. Uh, Time, even New York Times was there. Uh, Paris Match, uh, their version of the Times, or widely distributed magazine, and also uh, Stern, uh, British mag- or German magazine Stern. Uh, covered it. There were Vatican observers. There was, this was really, it created quite a stir. In this square in front of the church, they had as many as a quarter million physical witnesses at a time. And here's a side kicker to it. 
is they had another version of these apparitions in November of 2009 at another Warig El Hadar. It's another suburb of Cairo. So, and the Coptic Church, which investigated these matters, did authenticate the validity of them as well. So uh, this is really dramatic stuff. It really was there. A, was there a message uh, attended? No, these with were the... silent. This was silent, but uh, this was a pivotal time too, because it was right after the Arab-Israeli War, and perhaps, uh, of course, the apparitions completely uh, and you know grasped the attention of the Egyptians, and uh, I think perhaps it kind of cooled the water after the war. You know, it kind of settled everybody out and diverted their attention to things divine instead of the warlike efforts. So. Kevin Cook is with us, author of uh, The Marian Apparitions Are Real, uh, Visits from Jesus and Mary. Now, uh, why, uh, for example, in the case of, uh, of um, the, sighting of, the sighting in Cairo in 1968, 1970, right. do we attribute that to the Virgin Mary and, and say, uh, and I'm asking someone who's you know, interested in the paranormal, the supernatural, right? I mean, imagining if that's happening today, it might be called a mass, you know, UFO sighting or something. Why? Why are we well, convinced? See, I've dealt with this issue before, like on coast to coast and things like that. But here's the thing, Richard. Now, I do believe there's some validity to UFOs. I mean, there's so much. I've always been a, a person that, just in a simple sense, would say where there's smoke, there's fire. You know, I mean, millions of people from every. Uh, walk of life have seen ghosts, so there's probably something to that. And by the same token, there's even you know, depictions of UFOs and medieval paintings that have been on in Europe for 500 years. So there is something to those, both those phenomena. But uh, in this case, these apparitions in, of the Virgin Mary have been going on since 40 A.D. Uh, they go back that far. And in the back of the book is a uh, chart that I got from the International Marian Research Institute, and it depicts just the apparitions from the year 1900 to the current day. And... Uh, there's over, you know, 200 and some just in the last 110 years. But what I'm saying is, it's my opinion that the frequency has been, you know, existing throughout. There's been probably 2,500, 3,000 Marian apparitions. And what I'm saying is to bring the story up to speed relative to UFOs is, what would the, <laughs> what would the aliens' motive be? I mean, to promote Catholicism and Christianity in general? I mean, in other words, it's a 2,000-year project and miracle cures and physical evidence? I mean... You know, gee, uh, why would they do that? <laughs> I guess it's I'm not an excellent. Thinking. It's an excellent point, and it, what's also possible is uh, that uh, I'm I'm someone who's inclined to believe that the UFO phenomenon uh, is best explained as something interdimensional rather than interdimensional. Well, no, that's very possible. That's very possible. Uh, I, I've read a lot of that, Richard, and that's that is very a lot of UFO theorists uh, believe that. Yes. So I guess what I'm what I'm saying is that uh, we could be talking about uh, something that originates from the angelic realm or the demonic realm, uh, yeah. and when we're talking about Marian apparitions or when we're talking about uh, angelic apparitions right. and the UFO phenomena, we could all be talking about the same thing. They might intermingle and and cross over. I don't know. As I mean, I, I'm certainly not. Uh, qualified to speak on that issue but but the, but I know I I'm as I believe that this is as valid a phenomenon as possible uh with every fiber of my being or I wouldn't have written the book I really do Let's go to the calls and uh, say hello to Arthur from Toronto. Hello Arthur, welcome to the conspiracy show. Hi. How are you? I'm well, thank you. That's good. 
uh, I believe, and many thousands of other people believe, believe the same thing, I guess, that more attention should be paid to the worship of Christ Jesus who came to earth to preach God's kingdom, not anybody else where the Virgin Mary. Of course, it was wonderful that God used Mary as his instrument to send Christ to earth, but the attention should be paid to Christ Jesus. Well, every apparition, actually, of her messages is, does nothing but speak to, you know, worshiping Christ and so forth and yeah. devotion to her son. She's not in business for herself. No. Uh, there is biblical background that says she has a role to play. Uh, look More at Luke. More attention these days. First chapter of Luke uh, and John. She's, uh, you know, Jesus on the cross. He's talked to one of his disciples. He said, here is your mother. There, this, there is some methodology here. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's not really for us to say if God, uh, you know, you know, can't send messengers or angelic visitations or anything else. All right, Arthur, thank you for the call. And Michael from the Beaches neighborhood of Toronto, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Yes, uh, good morning, Richard. And uh, <clears throat> uh, a question to Kevin here. Now, you said you were, uh, I think, a former Protestant minister and all that. So right. the question really is, the position of Protestantism is that Mary had children. In other words, Jesus had brothers and sisters. So the, I guess my question or comment is, what what makes you think that these are apparitions of the Virgin Mary, since we don't seem to believe that she's a virgin among Protestants? Well, it's spoken of as the virgin birth, number one. Number yeah. two, uh, this sub-dispute, uh, Catholics, for example, would believe that she's ever virgin and so forth. The issue is, we're getting salt in the pepper here. The, the issue is really, she, I believe she's a messenger from God in these apparitional forms. I believe there's biblical evidence that even the Protestants would have to admit uh, speaks to her as having a role. It says in Luke that she'd be forevermore called blessed and so forth like that. Yeah. Uh, and I think these are the issues. And the scientific evidence that I've stressed in the book and the witnesses, artifacts, relics, that verify the authenticity of this, photos, uh, supersedes all kinds of the shenanigans. And uh, Jesus has also appeared in a lot of these apparitions as well. Okay. So all the Protestant Catholic nonsense is all eyewash. Uh, even in most of her messages, she even speaks of ha- a very ecumenical message and does not just endorse Roman Catholicism or Orthodoxy or anything else. She comes to all mankind. So you so, think it's all so, theological... Uh well, uh, debates about nothing then. Exactly. All right, Michael, thank you for the call. Listen, we'll take a time out, come back, and continue our conversation with Kevin Cook as we discuss Marian apparitions. Again, get on board, join the conversation at 416-360-0740, toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740. The truth will set you free, but first... It'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 
theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Just a reminder, season two of The Conspiracy Show on television uh, kicks off this coming September, 2011. 18 brand new half-hour episodes coming your way, and uh, we're just uh, in the midst of production now. I'll be hitting the road and uh, speaking with some great guests and bringing them all to you again this September. 18 new episodes, and if you missed out on any of season one, Uh, Come the fall of this year, you'll get to see those as well. Uh, I I believe uh, on Vision TV, they'll uh, they'll play sort of a new episode back-to-back with an old episode. All right, more details on that in the coming weeks. Kevin Cook is with us. Marian apparitions are real visits from Jesus and Mary. He says that the apparitions of both Jesus and Mary have been occurring for 2,000 years. There have been millions of witnesses as well as physical evidence connected with these events. Now, uh, Kevin, to my understanding, the Catholic Church only recognizes a, a handful as um, authentic, if That's you will. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, In your estimation, kind of a, how many? Well, about 11. But, but what it is, Richard, is it's a little murky because in the 1930s, the Church stopped as a, as a unit stopped uh, with the apparitions in Benau and Borang, Belgium, stopped, uh, you know, approving them as such and delegated that to the local bishop to have responsibility for deciding the pro or con on it. Now, that's being augmented a little bit lately with, uh, there's a Vatican commission on Medjugorje, which a Cardinal Rowini is conducting to, to investigate the validity of that and so forth. But so that's the first time since the 30s that the church has, you know, really as a, as a whole has gotten involved with uh, approving or disapproving an apparition. But, um, but in actuality, you're right. There's only been about 11 that have been approved uh, you know, by the church as a whole. But there's been others, like, for example, in Batania in the 1980s, early 90s, that was approved by the bishop in that area in Venezuela. Tell uh, me what happened there. Well, in Batania, it was really quite remarkable. Uh, there was a... A seer named Maria Esperanza, and she uh, had visions of the Virgin Mary, and connected with her apparition were things very similar to Fatima, where they had celestial displays. Uh, they had, like, at, on the grounds of this retreat that Esperanza had, they, uh, there were many, many people that saw the, an image of the Virgin Mary. Uh, there was, um, what else? There's a, there's a, they had a mass at this particular uh retreat site, and they saw a glowing host, you know, five, ten thousand people saw that. There's a lot of, a lot of cures connected with it, a lot of uh, similar happenings to at other more uh, famous Marian uh, apparitions. And uh, it was really a, quite a remarkable apparition. It was approved by that local bishop in Venezuela. Now, some of the more modern uh, day apparitions, sometimes it seems like hardly a day goes by when, you know, this, one of the supermarket tabloids isn't reporting that someone's seen an image of uh, either oh, Jesus yeah. or the Virgin Mary in a loaf of bread or a Big Mac right, right. or, uh, uh, you know, a, an oil stain on a driveway and so forth. Um, how do you sort of, uh, as someone who investigates these, separate the wheat from the chaff? Well, you just kind of dismiss that out of hand. I mean, uh, 
Now, I've, you know, I, you know, I'm wrong to dismiss it too out of hand because who am I to say? But 99% of the time, maybe 99.9% of the time, that's what's called matrixing, where you know you look at clouds and you think, well, that looks like a dog or that looks like a horse or whatever, an airplane, whatever. And the mind just tries to make order out of disorder, and I think that's just people's imagination. Uh, you have enough objects out there, you're going to have a splotch that would look like, uh, you know, any, a baseball or something. But what I'm saying is that uh, I kind of dismiss that. The only ones I really studied are the ones that have cold, hard evidence that you know stacked up and running over, like I've indicated, that uh, the church is validated. The other stuff is. Well, more or less along the lines of superstition, you might say. There was a um, several years ago uh, an Orthodox church, I believe, in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, they had reported that a uh, an icon of the Virgin Mary was weeping oil. Right. Right. Um, what What did if you I don't know if you're familiar with it or investigated it. What was the result of that? I mean, did, did was that recognized? I don't know was about it a the hoax? Orthodox one in that case, but I know in. Japan in the 1970s, they had Our Lady of Akita, they called the apparition, and uh, they had a statue of the Virgin Mary that was weeping tears, and they, the Japanese had it examined by testing labs, and it was shown to be genuine human tears, and this was a well-witnessed phenomenon. Um, and I, way, way back when I lived in Maryland, and I, I was a Methodist minister when I was a kid, student Methodist minister, uh, I investigated in Wilmington, Delaware, a uh, bleeding statue of Jesus, actually, and I'm convinced of the validity of that. I didn't have the you know, resources I have now to test things or to uh, investigate, but I, I, from the witness testimony and the observation, I believe it was a valid event. And Those apparitions that have also included a message uh, from the Virgin Mary, has that message evolved and changed over time? Uh, yes, I think it, it has, most of the messages are, for the most part, classical as far as, you know, uh, turning away from sin and saying the rosary and uh, viewing Jesus as our Savior. Most of the messages are classical messages, but there is kind of, there have been somewhat uh, more or less apocalyptic messages in terms of, like at Fatima, where she's talking about serious upheavals, um, there's actually a, a Brazilian seer named uh, Pedro Regis who's currently having apparitions of the Virgin Mary and it's under church study now, but uh, he keeps uh, what you could call a, well, a website that keep, chronicles the messages. And, uh, you know, and he actually predicted the uh, Gulf oil disaster and the Haitian earthquake <laughs> uh, several months ahead. And this was mm. in clear-cut terms. And like I say, it was well documented on his website that it was done way ahead of time. And there seems to be a lot of validity to that. Uh, you mentioned apocalyptic messages. There, uh, there were reportedly three messages uh, given to the young uh, girls in Fatima. Right. The first two were revealed. The third one was sealed, supposedly. And there is this uh, story, I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or not, that... Uh, the the Pope at the time, uh, I, I'm not sure if it was Pope Paul, uh, yeah. but but one of them was said to have uh, of fainted or gasped when he read the contents of that. I've heard third things message. like that, and see the messages to Sister Lucia were to make these uh, prophecies known after 1960, and every Pope up until 
2000, uh, neglected to, to follow through, and which was kind of strange. And uh, John Paul II, uh, there was some allusion to the third secret of Fatima. As a matter of fact, they made a statement that the third secret of Fatima had to do with the 1981 assassination attempt on Pope John Paul II. But uh, there's, I think there's, there's some, been some discussion uh, among fairly knowledgeable quarters that, uh, yes, that might have had something to do with the third uh, secret, but there was an ancillary part which had to deal with other more weighty issues. And I know that from my studies of it, when the third secret was written down, it was only conveyed to the Vatican in 1957 by the local bishop in Portugal, that um, one of the third secret did include a line that said, in Portugal, the doctrine of the faith will always be preserved. But I think that it's been surmised that as part of an extension of that, that if, if, okay, if the faith is fine in Portugal, where is it not fine? Well, you know, certainly one could say the, that the faith has fallen off in Europe with some scandals the church has had and so forth. And, uh, and just for general various reasons... And uh, there's a group called Fatimists, and uh, they met in Rome in May of 2010. They had a convention, and one of their members was a man named Christopher Ferrara, who's a U.S. attorney, pretty much a fellow that would know about investigations. And to paraphrase Ferrara, he basically said that it's clear as crystal there's more to the third secret than what's been mentioned. And... uh, that came from the Catholic News Service, by the way. I mean, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but that's, that's a pretty well, a pretty good paraphrase of it. And it's possible, and I you know, not, can't say for absolute certainty, but it's possible the Church is perhaps withholding some information uh, about these events because they wouldn't want people to be disturbed or um, upset, fearful. And at 1984... Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, at the time, now Pope Benedict, said that the third secret had to do with, uh, yes, apocalyptic events. So uh, there's been a little bit of murkiness there. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just telling it like it is. <laughs> but and, it seems to be uh, something that's more to the story, yes. And, uh, I mean, are we then to expect at some point that, that uh, the Vatican will, re- will release the contents of that, or will it be forever sealed? I don't think so. I don't think so, because whatever was spooking them uh, went on for many years, and like I say, just in May of 2010, uh, not, you know, Fatimists don't have all the answers either, but they have enough circumstantial evidence to be questioning the Church's stand. That, not to say they didn't, the Third Secret may have had something to do with the assassination attempt of John Paul II, but they feel there's something left out, and that, and in fairness to the Church, uh, if they knew about true apocalyptic events, it may not be uh, good to tell us, you know. If I knew you were going to get hit by a car after you left the radio station, I probably wouldn't tell you. <laughs> I mean, that's silly to say that, but I mean... Just understood. No, I, I understand what you're, what you're saying. Now, I, um, I spoke to a, um, I don't know if he was a Fatimist per, per se, but he was certainly someone who uh, had researched the uh, events at Fatima, yeah. And his interpretation of one of the messages was that Russia, in order to sort of avert some disaster, Russia had to uh, convert 
to Catholicism. And right, uh, right. again, as, a, as an Orthodox Christian, perhaps I, I took some umbrage with that, well, <laughs> knowing that I, Russia is already an Orthodox uh, Christian country. So, I mean, is that true? Is, was that part of the... Um, one of I the, think it had to do with consecrating Russia in 1984, but I, I, don't think, I think it was more to Christianity than... The reference is more to Christianity than to one denomination or the other. Because I must stress once again, Richard, in all these apparitional contacts and messages and everything I've researched from one side to the other, the Virgin Mary doesn't come down hard and strong on being a Roman Catholic at all. Her well, it's a very ecumenical so. message, and nobody mentions that, by the way. And my Catholic brethren might not mention it either, but that's the truth. Well, it, it, that is true. It, it has been, um, these, the, these apparitions have been, co-opted is too strong a word, but it, I mean, we're left with the impression that, you know, she's, she's is basically doing a, a, a sales pitch for the, like a company for the Catholic. I know, yes, exactly. but that's not true. As a matter of fact, anything far from it. Did you know even the Muslims venerate the Virgin Mary? I did not know that. They do. At many of the quarter million people at one given time, remember, Egypt's basically 90% Muslim. Right. So of the quarter million people that were in that square, many, many of them were Muslims, over half. And uh, there have been Orthodox apparitions that aren't spoken of too often, but I do mention them in the book. And, uh, I mean, this, I, what I'm try, that's one of the reasons I'm writing the book is to be more ecumenical, because... To be candid, Richard, you know, I'm not very far from being an Anglican anyway. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, there's really no big leap from Anglican to Catholicism, really, except I'm more classical in my beliefs, maybe. But what I'm saying is that uh, these apparitions are for everybody. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is to try to throw science at it and also throw the reality of the, of the prophecies at it and to take the denominational stress out of it, because it's not valid, it's not accurate. Well, that's uh, that's uh, encouraging uh, to hear you say that. Listen, we'll take one final time out, come back, continue our conversation. Kevin Cook, author of Marian Apparitions Are Real, Visits from Jesus and Mary. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. All right, we have time to, to uh, work in a fast call here for Kevin Cook, author of Marian Apparitions Are Real. Doug is in Indiana. Welcome. Good morning, Doug. Yeah, I'd like to uh, have uh, Kenneth uh, make a comment on, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, during World War II, the U.S. converted the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth into troop-carrying ships. And in the process of crossing the Atlantic, the Queen Mary had an escort, which I thought was a light cruiser. And the Queen Mary's speed was so much faster than the cruiser that uh, uh, it had to sit there and zigzag while the cruiser kept a steady course. And in the interpretation I got is 
the cruiser got in front of the bow of the Queen Mary and it was pushing it to the ocean sideways and did massive damage to the bow of the Queen Mary. And uh, it was substantially repaired and there was a number of people on the ship that got killed in the bow section of it. Anyway, that was converted over to a museum display over by Los Angeles. And uh, right. according to fact is that ship with people on on board uh, looking at it as a museum piece, hear occasionally the crunching sounds of a collision in that steel structure of the ship, which was repaired in the bow section. Plus, they see aberrations in this ship, too. And, uh, you know, I'm you familiar see, with like it. I mean... Pretty, I've heard of uh, is the Queen Mary. Is that the one in Long Beach? Yeah, yeah. I've known some people that have uh, experienced some paranormal phenomena. A buddy of mine from the Methodist Church. He uh, had experienced some kind of odds phenomenon down there. But other than that, I don't know much about it. Uh, yeah, uh, Doug. I, I don't know if um, you caught the conversation late. We're actually talking about apparitions of the Virgin Mary. So, um, unless it was uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary that's seen on the uh, the Queen Mary, probably not. Um, uh, you're probably barking up the wrong tree, I guess. <laughs> uh, okay, well, he mentioned the uh, Flight 401, too, and, uh, yeah. you know, he seems like a pretty scientific type of guy, and uh, there is something to that. Uh, there is. Uh, the, well, I know very credible. He was, uh, oh, he runs a United Methodist orphanage in Orlando, and uh, I've known him some time, and I, he said he experienced something down there. I probably believe him, you know. Doug, nonetheless, great to hear from you from uh, the Hoosier State, uh, Indiana. Thank you for the call. Okay. All right. Uh, any any conflicts uh, as far as you're concerned, uh, uh, um, Kevin, regarding you know belief in in ghosts and spirits and uh, no, I don't Christ- think Christian so. faith. Jesus even mentioned ghosts in the uh, Bible, and uh, you know the witch of Endor raised the ghost of Samuel the prophets, and there's just there are ghosts, and also and these kind of connections, Richard. What I go back to is where it says in the Bible, Jesus said, "In my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you." But by saying many mansions, I think it's an indication of complexity that we can't hardly even guess at. So I think that, like we alluded to earlier with the UFO phenomenon and so forth, there's probably a lot of complexity. We try to put everything in a neat little box to make it seem sensible to us, but that doesn't mean we're the box we put in it's true. In other words, uh, I don't know. I do have a setup, it? though. I will say this, that on my, my website, it's www.marianapparitionsareal.com, same name as the book that if someone in Canada did want to buy the book, they could get it through Amazon. They can get, you know, I have an international form of Amazon. Excellent. Okay. Listen, Kevin, I really um, enjoyed our conversation tonight. Thank you for joining me. Okay. Thank you very much. And, uh, well, I almost went to McGill University. I guess this is uh, close as I'll get to Canada for the time being. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, if you're ever up this way, give us a call, and we'll uh, we'll get you into the studio and, and uh, do it live. Okay. I'll do it sometime. Thank you. Thank you. Kevin Cook. All right, uh, my thanks to Griffin March uh, for producing and uh, for all of you for listening. Also, uh, Pepper Chomsky, author of The Peace Code, The Secret to Kill John Lennon, and of course, Kevin Cook. Uh, Marian apparitions are real. Back next week with a brand new show. And uh, as always, visit the website richardserrett.com for details. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper proclaimed from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.